uh, about my wife because she's not here, and uh, and so I'll talk about her while she's not here. Which, by the way, yesterday was her birthday, and so she turned 33, which is the year that Jesus was killed. And so, um, but yes, she's 33 now, and uh, and um, I'm 32. I'm six months younger than she is, so you know she kind of robbed the cradle, I guess. But uh, but I'll be 30, uh, 33 in January, so. Um, Anyway, you can have six months to think of what you're going to get me for my birthday. Uh, but anyway, um, in my living room at my house, we had this ceiling fan uh, that was old. And we moved to the house about five years ago, and the ceiling fan was old and rickety. You, it only had one setting. It had super high-speed setting. And the problem, though, was when you put on that setting is it would, like, not only would it rotate like a fan rotates, but the fan itself would kind of wobble. You know, and so if you had the light on the room, it would like make this weird sensation, like you're being interrogated, like the light would kind of shift back and forth. And so Courtney, um, she had this idea. She said, "Dave, how about we get a new ceiling fan?" And but if you're a guy, you'll learn this when you get married, guys. Um, that the woman has all the ideas, but the guy gets to do all the work, right? That's why the guy never thinks of things around the house, because he has to be the one that actually does it, right? That's why guys procrastinate, and women always think of things, but then the guy actually has to go and do it, okay? So um, we decided, she's like really pushing this issue, we've got to get a new ceiling fan, we have to get a new ceiling fan. So we went to the store, we picked out the perfect one, and she's like, I want your input into the ceiling fan. I'm like, babe, it's ceiling, just get whatever you want to get, I don't really care. And she's like, but I want to have your input. And so I'm like, okay, I'll give my input. So I gave her my opinion. We got the ceiling fan. We go home. And I dismantle the old ceiling fan, which wasn't that difficult. But then it comes time to actually put up the new one. So I tried putting this thing together, and I reached this point where I just can't really figure something out about how to install the very first piece, which needs to be installed before the rest of it's installed. And so um, it waited for like a month, and we had wires sticking out of the ceiling. And we had uh, friends coming over from England for like a week, and she's like, Dave, before Simon gets here, I want you to put the ceiling fan up. I'm like, okay, all right, put the gun down. It's all right. And... Uh, so finally, um, I had a friend come over and help me install the ceiling fan. It was a two-person job. We finally got it installed before my friend came over from England. And uh, so we're in the house. The ceiling fan, so everyone comes in and goes, wow, what an amazing ceiling fan. That's so awesome. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I put it up myself, kind of. And, uh, and, and so the first time that we're sitting in the room and the TV's on, and as a guy, I always get really, really hot. When I'm watching TV, I just can't. I get really hot. And so I'm like, I'm sweating. It's really hot in here. And uh, I started saying, I was like, well, I'm going to turn the ceiling fan on. So I go over and turn it on, and she's sitting on the couch, and she's like, Dave, I'm freezing. It's really cold. I'm like, okay, okay, just this once. I won't turn it on. The next week, same thing happened. I try to turn the fan on, and she's like, Dave, I'm really freezing. Don't turn the fan on. And I'm like, why do we have a ceiling fan then? Okay? If I can't use it, why do we have it, right? And then it occurred to me that my wife likes the idea of the ceiling fan. But she doesn't want the ceiling fan, right? She likes the idea of having the ceiling fan. But she doesn't really want the ceiling fan. And as I've thought about, you know, working with youth over the last few years, I've seen this trend, especially um, in, in your age group, 
where many of you like the idea of Jesus, but you don't really want to follow Him. You like the idea of Jesus. You like the idea of forgiveness. You like the idea of grace. But when it comes to really following after Him with your life, that's where it gets difficult. And so we waste our lives. We waste our lives. The question is why? What is it that's holding us back? What keeps us from following Him? The passage we're going to look at today is Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 8. This passage answers that question. Why? Why do so many of us waste our lives? Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And in verse 34, Jesus says, what says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So what is it that holds us back? What keeps us from really following Jesus? It's shame. It's shame. We're we're ashamed to be Christians. We're ashamed to be linked with this person called Jesus Christ. Many of us like the idea of being a Christian, but we're ashamed to follow him. I think back when I was in high school, and I went to a a Christian school, and so in a weird way it was like, okay, everyone's supposed to be a Christian, but it was still really uncool to, like, really live it out. You know, you know that weird dilemma that you're in? But, um... But even in that, in that setting, there were so many times where I wanted to be considered cool. I wanted to be seen by a certain group in a certain way. And so I may not say something or do something that would make me look like a Christian freak. Right? Don't talk about it too much. I mean, don't actually read your Bible, like, at school. Uh, don't pray. I mean, that's just kind of weird, you know. Um, but, but there are so many ways where I just was ashamed of my faith. And even when I got into college, I was thinking of what I wanted to do with my, my, with, for a living as a job. And, and um, for the longest time, I knew I loved working in the church with people and seeing people come to know Christ. But when I was in college, I was working as an intern at a church part-time. And, uh, and during that time, I really felt like I love this thing called ministry. I love it. But when someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I'm not going to be a pastor. There's no way. Okay, because if being a Christian is embarrassing, being a pastor is like a hundred times more embarrassing, right? When someone asks you what you do, and you say I'm a pastor, and people are like, "What? Well, what's that?" You know? Or if they say, if you say you're a youth pastor, it's like even in their eyes, even more embarrassing. So you basically play with kids all day. That's what you do for a living. Okay. And so I felt this shame in me. As a Christian, but also as someone who was feeling called to ministry but didn't want to commit to it because I felt like, I don't want to be, you know, I want people to take me seriously. Right? So when they ask what I do, I want to be able to say, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm something important, you know? 
But don't get me wrong, I love what I do here. But I just know that the perception out there in the world of what I do here, they'll think I'm a fool. They'll think I'm crazy. And, and so knowing that, there was this thing in me that just felt like, I feel ashamed. I would feel ashamed being a pastor. I'd feel ashamed having that for a job. But God got me through that. God got me through it. I think that shame is probably the biggest cause of the wasted life. Are you ashamed? Are you someone who's ashamed of Christ? I think there's two kinds of shame. First of all, there's being ashamed of Christ, being uh, ashamed of, of who He is, knowing that on the nightly news, on CNN, on all the big talk shows, that Christians, that Christ gets scoffed at, made fun of. Are you ashamed of Christ? Are you ashamed to stand up for Him? Are you ashamed of Christ? There's a second kind of shame, I think, that we can easily fall into, and that is being ashamed of Christians. Now, this is a bit more understandable because sometimes Christians can be crazy. But being ashamed of Christians, are you someone who's ashamed of being linked with that group of people, being linked with the church? And I would kind of halfway understand why you'd feel that way some of the time. Two kinds of shame, being ashamed of Christ or being ashamed of Christians. We like to mix in discussion questions with our teaching time this morning, and so I'm going to do that, that same deal this morning as well. If there's not a leader at your table, just you guys can handle it. You'll be fine. Um, which one of these do you struggle with the most? Uh, that will be your first discussion question. Which one of these, ashamed of, ashamed of Christ or ashamed of Christians, do you struggle with the most? And give examples of how you struggle with each one of those. Discuss.
Okay, how many of you guys would say you've actually, you've been ashamed of Christ? And you're not ashamed to admit it right now. You've been ashamed of Christ before. Raise your hand. You struggle with that. I'll raise my hand. I, I have before. Uh, ashamed of Christians. Raise your hand. Most of us. I figured that would probably be the case. Uh, but you can easily see how being ashamed of Christians can easily lead to being ashamed of Christ, right? We are His body. He calls us His bride. He calls us His body. And so it's very easy for us to make the link that if we're ashamed of Christians, then we're probably going to not want to associate as much or identify as much with those people that claim to follow Him, Christians, right? Or with Christ. So one can easily lead to the other, but both of these can paralyze us and cause us to waste our lives. But the good news is that Jesus warned us 2,000 years ago that following Him would be hard, would be difficult. You see, with Satan, Satan promises pleasure, but he doesn't talk about the peril. He promises good things and doesn't tell you about the bad things that come from following after His way. But Jesus Christ actually tells us, He says, look, follow me is going to be really difficult. So, he, so Christ promises suffering, but He also promises joy. And we're going to see how He does that in these next few, next few verses. Look at, uh, again at verse 34. We're going to take these verse by verse. It says, Then He called the crowd to Him along with His disciples and said, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. He's saying that before you follow Me, before you come after Me, make sure you know the cost. There are so many young Christians, especially today, that just follow Him blindly. They say, someone says, you want to pray to receive Christ? And they go, yeah, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good plan. And they'll do it without really counting the cost of what it's going to take to really follow Him. People will say that statistically, that the majority of high school kids that claim to be following Christ in high school will abandon their faith by the age of 18 to 20. See, I don't think it's really so much about that they abandoned the faith. I think they never had faith. I think they just really never chose to follow Him. You can't lose your salvation when you're in a relationship with Christ. But you can lose the pretending. You can lose the two-faced deal. And just decide, you know what? I'm going to stop pretending. I'm going to go the way I've been walking in my heart. I'm just going to make sure that my actions match up with what I really want to do in my heart anyway. So before you follow Christ, make sure you know the cost. What does it mean to deny yourself? Does it mean to, to live like a monk, like live out in the desert, wearing like a, a brown robe with a hoodie, you know, and eat, eat nasty bread? 
and and sing in the middle of the night and chant and that sort of thing? Does that mean to what does it mean to deny yourself? What Christ is saying here when he says deny yourself, he is saying, Allow me to direct your life. Give up the right that you think you have to direct your own life and allow me to guide and direct your life. It's giving up self dependence and choosing to depend on God. Then he moves on to the next statement. He says, Take up your cross. What does that mean? Take up your cross. What, what this meant in, in the culture this being written to, uh, you, can, you can think of the passion of the Christ whenever Christ is carrying his cross up the hill before he's crucified. It wasn't just Christ who did that. What the Romans would do is they would make anybody who was sentenced to die through crucifixion, they would make them carry their cross on their back as they went to their, their death. And the reason why they did that, it wasn't to just prolong the torture. It was so that it was a symbol. It was a symbol basically saying, this person has to submit to the authority of Rome. The authority which they rebelled against. So as they're carrying this cross and they feel the the splinters going into their back and they're carrying this weight, it's a symbol to the people. This person is now submitting to the authority of Rome as they go to their death. And so when Jesus says to carry your cross, he is saying spiritually, for you spiritually, you need to submit to me because I am your authority. And so in a sense, you spiritually carry your cross. It's your way of acknowledging to Christ and to God that I admit that I'm a sinner, I want to submit myself to your authority, and I want you to be the ruler of my life. So spiritually, it was symbolic of you submitting to Jesus. Now as we read this passage, do you you see what Jesus is doing here? He's inviting us. He's inviting us to suffer with Him. Most of us think that Jesus suffered so I don't have to. Jesus suffered so I can be free of suffering. But Jesus is actually inviting us in to suffering with Him. To be a Christian is to suffer with Jesus. To be a Christian is to accept that invitation and actually suffer with Him. And it's true. It's true. Following Christ leads to suffering. In fact, I'll even tell you that that following Him, it's not just that He'll help you deal with suffering once you follow Him. Following Him actually leads to suffering. For the early apostles, it led to their death. For many people since then, it's led to their death. For you, it leads to shame. It leads to persecution in your schools. Following Christ will lead to suffering. And there are times when it can feel like you're hanging on a cross. You, You see, the cross was embarrassing. It was shameful. The pictures you've seen of Christ on the cross have been severely edited. They always show him with a cloth over him. He was naked. He was naked. He died naked before many, many observers. It was a shameful, disgusting, embarrassing moment for anyone who was killed that way. And when you, and when you feel like you're hanging on a cross as a Christian, you, you feel embarrassed, you feel shamed, you feel disgusting to the people that are looking at you. That's exactly what Christ went through, but in a physical way. And He's inviting you to suffer with Him as His follower. Look at verse 35. It says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel 
We'll save it. Now this is an extremely confusing statement, isn't it? Your next question is this. What does Jesus mean by this statement? And how do we try to save our lives and end up losing our lives as a result? How do we try to save our lives and end up losing our lives as a result? I'll give you a hand. He's not talking so much about physical death and physical life. But go ahead and discuss at your tables. A summary statement of what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that if if we live for ourselves, then we'll lose ourselves. But if we lose ourselves for His sake, then you find yourself. Now I know that you've probably heard someone say, like, I just need to find myself. Like a girl breaks up with a guy and he's like, why are you breaking up? She's like, I need to find myself. Right? Like the lamest excuse ever. Right? I need to find myself. And he's like, well, I can help you find you right here. You're standing right in front of me. Okay? So we've heard that statement before, but we know what people mean when they say it. They say, you know, things aren't quite right in my life. And so I want to find myself. I want to, there's something I'm missing in my life, and I want to find out what that is. And they call it finding themselves. But spiritually, this is very, a very true statement. That when you find Jesus, and you follow after Him, that's when you find your true self. Because if you were created in God's image, created to be in a relationship with Him then when you establish that relationship with Him, then you, have, you, have, you are now living out your, your ultimate purpose in life. And anything apart from that, you'll be losing yourself. 
course, you think you're finding yourself in those moments, but you're losing yourself in the process. You know, in high school, um, you can easily feel like your life is just slipping away from you. Uh, you can see all the parties, you can see all the fun people are having that looks like it's, it's life-giving, and yet it's life-taking. It's taking life from people. You can feel like your life is, is slipping away from you. You want to experience things. And, and so you take your life into your own hands. You decide, I'll put Christ on the back burner. I'll live how I want to live right now because I'm young. And I feel like my life is, is slipping away from me. And, from, and to change from that attitude, it would feel like you're losing yourself. To change from that attitude and actually follow after Christ, it would feel like you're losing yourself. And from your perspective, it does look like you're losing yourself. But from God's perspective, you are finding yourself. You're finding your true self. Look at verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You can gain the entire world. You can gain popularity, reputation, wealth. All that the world has to offer. You can gain the entire world. But when you do it at the loss of your soul, what a waste. What a complete waste. About two months ago, um, I decided to get rid of my youth pastor mobile car uh, called a Honda Civic. And... um, had that car for like eight years. It served me well. But it was time to upgrade. And so I decided to uh, find something different, something new, to have more space in our car. And so we, just, we found this really cool Suburban down in Houston uh, on the Internet. And so we drove all the way to Houston to get this car. And I was going to basically give them my car so I could get some money from my car, like a trade-in. But, of course, they would have to spend a lot of extra money to actually pay for the Suburban. If I actually walked into the lot and said, okay, here's what I'll do for you. Um, You see this Honda Civic, this 98 Honda Civic, look how awesome it is. Uh, I will trade you straight up for that Suburban. What do you think? If I said that, they'd laugh me off the lot, right? It's not an even trade. It's not an even trade. You've got this Suburban. It looks like a Secret Service repo car. It looks awesome. Then you have a little Civic. It could like fit in the back seat of the Suburban. I think Suburbans eat Civics for breakfast, actually. Seriously. So I think if, if I asked them that question, they, they'd laugh me off the lot. They would say, that's not an, even close to an even trade. Not an even trade. And you see, so many people, I think, try to trade in their soul to gain the entire world. You basically take something so valuable, and you try to trade it for something so invaluable. You try to trade your soul for worthless things. Not an even trade. Not an even trade at all. And some of you guys are making this trade right now. Your soul is the most important thing. Do not waste it. Don't waste it. Look at verse 38. It says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's not like Christ is saying, you know, oh, okay, so so you're ashamed of me? Well, fine, I'll be ashamed of you. 
How about that? He's not saying it that way. He's saying, if you're ashamed of me, then you might not belong to me. And if you don't belong to me, then I won't claim you as my own. I'm not going to force myself on you. So to be ashamed of him is to reject him. It's to reject him in a generation that hates him. It's being unwilling to stand up for him because you might not belong to him. If you have difficulty standing up for what you believe, difficulty for identifying with Christ, then you might not belong to Him. I'm not talking to the Christians here that that you struggle. We all struggle. I'm referring to you if you never, ever want to stand up for what you believe, if you never, ever want to stand up for Christ. And Christ is saying, "Then, then you might not belong to me. You need to at least examine that in your life. You, you might not belong. So in what ways are you ashamed? Christ, Christ died for us. And we won't live for Him. He's saying for you guys, Christianity is viewed as wimpy. Especially for you, for you young men in this room. Christianity is viewed as something weak, wimpy, something for pansies. And the question I want to ask you is... How did a movement that began with the bloody deaths of so many come to be viewed as weak? How did a movement that was started by men who took a sword, had their head chopped off, their blood was spilt for their faith, how did that come to be viewed as something weak and wimpy? In Romans uh, chapter 1 verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Why was Paul not ashamed? It's because he thought more of God than he thought of himself. So the question is, how are you going to live? How are you going to live? Do you just like the idea of Jesus? Or will you follow him? Do you just like the idea of salvation, of grace, or will you follow after Him with your life? You see, obedience to Christ always leads to suffering. But if you can't share in His suffering now, you will not share in His glory later. I want to ask you to close out by just praying at your tables and just pray that the words of, of Christ, the words of Paul, would just sink in this morning. Um, if you're a leader at a table, go ahead and lead your, your table in prayer. Um, if, you're not, if you don't have a leader at your table, just someone go ahead and lead and just pray. And whenever you're finished with that, uh, you're dismissed. Let's pray.